Okay. All right, everyone, we are. You can say that you were there at the beginning because God knows how long it will take us to get through this book. For those of you who are new to these book study classes, I don't have any schedule. I did the Gita commentary on a schedule and I swore that I would never do another book on a schedule because it just is too frustrating to me. So I teach every Tuesday night except when I don't. which is generally speaking when I'm out of town, so it can take us quite a while to get through a book, but it doesn't matter. I hope you don't mind. I don't mind. So, we're starting in with Conversations with Yogananda, um, and we'll start right in with page, as it is, page 7, which is the preface. Um, did he dedicate this book to anyone? No, he didn't. Interesting. Oh, dedicated to sincere truth seekers. To the sincere truth seeker, whatever his religion. Very sweet. Okay. This book was a, a played a significant part in a tra- a pr- an important transition in Swami's life, which is just, just to give you background. Because many of you, some of you at least, came into the scene of Ananda when certain things were already happening and you wouldn't necessarily have watched the progression of it. As Swami writes here, he talks about how, you know, this... This book is the the rest of I should say it for I should start from where he starts, but he, he describes the fact how when he became a disciple at the age of twenty two in nineteen forty eight, and Master was in the last, as it happened, three and a half years of his life, that right from the very beginning Master said to him, You should write down what I'm saying. And the obvious understanding between them was that someday Swamiji would take all the notes that he'd made and that he would publish it. It was a a significant request on Master's part for a lot of different reasons. Um, One was, um, quite simply, that he was acknowledging, um, even from the start, that Swamiji had a role to play in transmitting his teachings, in reaching out to the public, and also as a writer. And you might say, even as an editor, since he was talking about taking Master's own words down, editing being a very important point because um, to edit the Master's words means that you have to understand deeply enough not only what Master said, but what he intended so that you can then um, adjust those words as may be necessary to make sure that the words say exactly what he intended. This morning in a gathering in, at Chela Bhavan, the people who'd been, many of the people who'd been on this recent uh, trip to Italy, the pilgrimage trip to Italy, were sharing their experiences. And because I'm, been, I'm about to start writing a book, I'm getting into another book, um, I was, I've just been really conscious of words. And I was so interested to see how different verbal communication is from written communication. Now, of course with all due respect, there were no masters in the room. It was just us. We were just talking. But still, you can convey a great deal with the energy and the inflection of your voice um, that when you just put those flat words on paper, it doesn't, doesn't say that at all. Even your personality can be put out in the nuances of how you say things, but when you just put those words down. In fact, there's a movie that, um, it's called My Cousin Vinny which is a movie when Ananda was being litigated against for 12 years. We watched that movie probably at least 15 times as, as a, because it's a ridiculous movie 
about a court case. And when we were just so worn out with our own ridiculous court case, we would all watch that movie. We knew the movie so well, we, we started laughing in anticipation of the funny lines. But there's one part of it where the, uh, the character, the main character, this is a comedy for those of you who don't know it, and they, they accuse him of murdering this man, the clerk of the store. And they said, you killed the clerk. And he said, I killed the clerk? Like that. You know, and then he said it again. I killed the clerk? But of course, when they printed it, it said, I killed the clerk. <laughs> so the, the printed word was a confession. The spoken word was an astonished exclamation. But the words were exactly the same. So um, Master complained in the early years of his work because he would dictate his writings. And he would just dictate them in a, a superconscious stream of inspiration. But when someone then had to, as Swami did, said, do the, the plumbing, which is to just make sure that all the concepts were in order and that there were logical bridges, because Master was so intuitive that he would, he would make intuitive leaps. And if you were listening to him in a tune, you could know exactly what he meant. I have said many times about things that Swami said, but, you know, these are the words, but I knew what he meant. And I know that I wasn't making it up because we would then go forward according to that meaning. It was quite clear that that was what he had intended. Um, but it wasn't even exactly what he said because there was an intuitive connection. So when Master Swamiji said would dictate his writings, he would make many intuitive leaps. But for the sake of the, the more pedestrian mind, Swamiji would have to be able sometimes to build bridges that Master just didn't want to spend the time building, but were implied by everything that he said. But you see, you have to understand, one, you have to be in tune, and two, you have to actually really understand the teachings. Otherwise, you will just make a connection that isn't really there. So Master complained about early editors before Taramata came and was working on it, that they would just put in their own ideas, that they, they didn't really understand his teaching or even want to understand it enough. They would just put in their own ideas. So they would take the framework that he had built and then go in another direction because they just didn't know. I myself have seen people in experiences I've had with Swami. I've heard people interpret things that Swamiji has done that is not how I would interpret them. That's just how, that's, I'll just leave it at saying that, that it's not the way I understood. It's, it's, what, it's what happened, but it's not the way I understood it. I have some reason to have faith in my intuition because I've, I've been able to test it with Swamiji a great deal in the writing I've done. But still, I'm not going to say that absolutely, but I do see it's a creative process. So when Swamiji... Uh, was asked by Master to write down his words with the clear intention being that he would edit them into comprehensive language and uh, publish them. Master was endorsing him at just at the very beginning, which is really all they had just a few years together, that I trust you to do this, or I trust that you will be able to do this. So it was 1948 when Swamiji came to Master, and the first, well, when he was building Ananda, um, in, the, in the late 60s, and he was trying to raise money in every possible way. One very, um, I think, very notable feature of Swami's discipleship and his dedication to Master 
was even after he was a fully professed monk in Self-Realization Fellowship um, for 14 years and then was expelled in 1962 at the age of 36. And he had no money and he had no career except the career of being a, a, a disciple of Master and no friends, no prospects. He never took a job. He earned money from that point on by doing what he felt he was born to do, which was to spread Master's teachings. The only job he ever took was that he went to work for the Peace Corps once for six weeks. because, And, and when I mentioned that to Swami, he said, yes, but I thought I was helping Master's teaching by doing that because I thought that the Peace Corps volunteers going to India, which is the ones he was going to train, would be interested in Sanatan Dharma, in the teachings of India. When he discovered that they weren't, he said he got other people to give them the lectures they wanted to about the economic and the this and the that. And he said, but he still met with those, the small number who wanted to meet with him to tell them about the true India. But that was the only, the only exception. Everything else he did, he did by writing books, um, by making records, by giving lectures, because it was... It, it was outside of his dharma. It was a betrayal of his vow as a disciple to do anything other than serve his guru. And it's really quite remarkable because all of Ananda was built from nothing. It was built from nothing. Swami was alone in the back bedroom of his parents' house. And then everything came from his discipleship, which he never violated. Never. So during that time, he had these notes of master and he created something, you won't believe this, 1967, 68, 69, it was called the Dollar a Month Club. <laughs> one dollar. You sent in one dollar, generally in an envelope like this, and you mailed it in and in return, every month you got like two or three um, Xerox, not Xerox, mimeograph, that's the word? Mimeographed pages in which he had various sayings of master. And he offered this as something unique that he could offer because he'd taken all these notes. And so for a number of months, he earned who knows how much money. I, I remember putting a dollar in an envelope and mailing it, to him, mailing it off to him every month and then getting these. I don't have a complete set, but I have quite a few of them. And you see in them what later stories and anecdotes and things that later appeared in other books, but not quite as um, refined. I mean, exactly the same ideas but just not, the language isn't as polished. Swami didn't, one, have the time to do it. And two, I, I don't think he was ready, really. Um, I, I found a few, a few things there. That's why I found the quote that I've shared with you about free will, which I've never seen anywhere else. I don't know, I don't know if it's in this book or not. Maybe it's in this book now. He said, uh, it, because people are always asking about how much is free will and how much is, is karma. And Master said, almost everything is, is karma, and the little bit that is free will, only a very wise person can tell. Which is, I have, since I have had to struggle answering that question for so many years, I was struck by that. But that I'd never read anywhere else, and I read it in the files of the Dollar a Month Club. <laughs> Maybe it's somewhere else I'll look. Um, so, so Swamiji had these, these notebooks, and he literally, and I presume they're going to be in the museum or something, they just had these little spiral notebooks. And he just wrote. He didn't do shorthand, so he just wrote notes. 
and just kept them. Master would talk. And Swamiji said it was annoying to him sometimes because Master would be talking and he would just have a desire to close his eyes. And Master would always make sure that he was writing things down. On one occasion, he turned to him and said, did you write that down? I seldom say something like that. Make sure you write that down. And he also, Swami said, that Master often spoke in a room of people who often spoke directly to Swami. Because there was this future that Master knew. Now think about it. I mean, of all the disciples that we know about, and those of you who have been with us longer know this, who else has had such a public life? Who else has had such a destiny for so many years of communicating Master's teachings? The, the women, you know, Ananda Mata, Marinalini Mata, Mukti Mata, Daya Mata, Durga Mata, Durga did more. But Durga wrote one book, and she, you know, she didn't found an organization, and she didn't really leave a legacy of teaching. She wrote the one book, which was really a biography, a biography of herself, of Rajasian Master. Um, but she didn't really lecture that much. She had, a, she had a group of people for whom she was spiritually responsible. Um, but Dayamata has led the organization, but, and she has, you know, there are some lectures and so on, but compared to... You know, what kind of a life is she had? Marinalini has been invisible. Ananda Mata was invisible. Mukti Mata has not really gone outside of the organization. Uma Mata, Dr. Lewis, Rajasi. You can make the whole list. I mean, who among them had a destiny to really have to tell everyone what Master taught and what it meant? Really just, really just one on the scale that Swami did. So Master was just like, there's everybody in the room, but it's him he needed to make sure that he understood and to make it even more pronounced, he had him write it down, both for the sake of his future and also in the moment to just make sure he was capturing it and to confirm that this is your destiny. Thus, anyone should question, which a few people have, but that's irrelevant. So Swamiji talked about, and he, I love the way he talks about it here, that he, when he had to carry the notebooks from his home at Ananda, where they, you know, I remember Swami buying these fireproof boxes, just being really intent on making sure that these were fireproof boxes. I mean, this was all started before the easy age of copy machines or scanners or anything like that. And it was just the notebooks. And he put them into fireproof boxes and made sure everyone knew that if anything happened, that was what we were supposed to take. I mean, because it would have just been an incalculable loss. But it was not until the early 70s, and so this is 1948 to 52 when he took these notes, but he didn't really publish them beyond the Dollar a Month Club um, until uh, he started working on The Path, which was 1974 or so. The book was published 78, I think, when it was finally published. I have this memory. Um, Swamiji started in on that book about 71, I think, and then worked on it for a while, and then just, it wasn't happening. So he put it aside, and then he picked it up again. Then my exact dates are not certain, but 74. By that time, I was working for him. That was the, the window of time when I worked for him as his secretary. And I remember the day he started that book. That was the time when he lived where he still lives, which is lived until he moved to the astral, or moved to the infinite. Um, uh, he, st- he lived in the dome, which is Crystal Hermitage, which is at the far edge of the Ananda land over the hill where the main part of the land is. We had the, the internet hadn't been invented, and he didn't have a computer. He got a computer at the end of writing that book. So it was the last book that was done on a typewriter. 
with no phones, no internet, no telephone at all in that area at that time. No cell phones hadn't been invented. Um, so when he was alone in his house, he was alone in his house. There was no connection. So uh, every afternoon in the late afternoon, I and Seva, Kalyani, sometimes Prakash, um, various others, um, but a few of us steadily would bring um, the mail, the physical mail, phone messages, anything that had happened that he needed to know about in the afternoon. So he would have, he didn't have a cook or a housekeeper, so he would be alone every day until we showed up at the end of the day. And then, so he was deciding he was going to start to write the path. And in his mind, he explains in here that he made it an autobiography. He was always very emphatic about this. It needs to be an autobiography so that the reader can discern what of the book is me and what of it is master. He didn't, he didn't feel confident enough. Well, he had, he had a good reason also. But he also didn't feel confident enough just to put out a book of master sayings without, as if he had the authority to do so. That's what he says here. He just didn't feel he quite had the authority to say, this is, this is master's teaching right here, without giving people the chance to know who the messenger was. And which is a very important point. Because who the messenger is, is part of how you see it. I, I mean, not even talking about misinterpreting things, which is, who's to say? If it has personal meaning for you and this is how you've understood it, I might imp- interpret it differently, but that's personal meaning for me. But I also, I've been very impressed over the years with my dear and respected friends that we will go through the same experiences and it's not that we'll interpret them differently, but we'll, we'll think of the key incidences quite differently. I mean, I'll just say, well, you know, that was the turning point. And they'll say, really? Or they'll say even, what happened on that day? And to me, it's like it's this red letter moment that just seems so important, but it never um, came into their awareness because of we all live in different universes. So Swami felt it was important to know, for people to know who the messenger was, and also, and rightly, he felt that Master's autobiography, as magnificent as it is, is hardly the life story of anyone else. So you can you relate to it because of the extraordinary, extraordinariness of every part of it, but it just isn't the story that any of us have lived, even Indians. It's just no one lived that story. But Swami Kriyananda was an American, a Westerner. The American is even only half of it. He's a Westerner. Because Western civilization is what's begun to define the world. And so you can hear how a Westerner dealt with um, coming to divine understanding. And of course that was vital. But what it also was, was he was going to accept now this commission from Master to begin to use all those stories. This is Swamiji's unique perspective. And I remember that he, somehow or another we must have copied those notebooks at this point in some way, because I remember him being on the floor. I came back at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So I, of course, was a much younger man at that point. And it was a hot day. It seemed to me like it was summer. I think he was down on the floor in a pair of Bermuda shorts and one of his Hawaiian shirts, but I don't have that certain. He was crawling around on the floor, and he had all these little stacks of paper. He'd cut up all of these different stories and had them all laid out on the floor, And I remember just walking in and just looking at this and Swami looking up at me and just sort of saying, you could tell he he felt the weight of what he was trying to do. How am I ever going to turn this into a book? 
just like that. And, you know, I had perfect confidence in him and I tended not to respond appropriately when he was just really wanting a little human comfort. Oh, you'll be able to do it, sir. It won't be a problem. Which was not really the right response, but that's more or less what I gave. But I just still remember him kind of sitting there. And it wasn't quite, they weren't blowing in the wind, but that was the sort of feeling you had that he was trying to keep them all in order. You know, once it's all, once the inspiration has been knit together, because that book became the path and then became the new path. But when Swami wrote all of that, we didn't know any of those stories, or not many of them. He did talk, but he hadn't talked that much. And they were, I mean, as much as he did by the end of his life. And then for the next four years, he worked on it, just honed it and honed it and honed it. And he often talked to us then, um, partly about Master, but also about the difference between the written and the spoken word. In that book, there's a story where he has reminiscences of Dr. Lewis. And he has Dr. Lewis telling certain stories, including the time that they, they were together in a San Francisco hotel room in adjoining rooms. And Mrs. Lewis was really tired and wanted to go to sleep, and Master thought he didn't want to waste the satsang time, and he was going to keep them up all night. (laughs) And so they all tried to go to sleep, and then Master started reciting nonsense phrases based upon the Chinese dinner that they'd had. Sub-gum duff, super sub-gum duff, super submarine sub-gum duff. (laughs) He was just sort of saying these things into the dark rooms until... And Mrs. Lewis was determined not to get out of bed, not to be woken up. They were in adjoining rooms with the door open. And finally, they all began laughing, and then they stayed up all night, and he talked to them all night. But Swamiji said he had an actual recording of Dr. Lewis telling that story. So he transcribed it. But transcribed it didn't sound like Dr. Lewis. Isn't that interesting? He said his verbatim words did not sound like him. I had to edit his words in order to make it sound like him. Because that's the difference. I mean, I heard people this morning say things like, I mean, we got there, and it was just so like, ah, okay. And everybody in the room knew exactly what they meant, but write that down. We got there, and it was so like, ah. You know, a little more is needed. And that's how Swami talks about it. I mean, that's what editing is, is you you take what is intended, but you make sure that it's actually said and not just implied. So Swami wrote The Path, and then, and that was chronological more or less, but it's really just all strung together. If you, you know, read the second half of the book, Life with Master, his point being to try to explain what the autobiography does not explain. I mean, the point of The Path was really to talk about Master's teachings for sure, but it was also what it was like to live with a Master. Who was he? Because if you, if you stand back from the opportunities that we have had who are part of Ananda, especially those of you who've been here longer or or take advantage of all the recorded material that Swamiji has given, really, what do you know about Master? You know the talks that a few direct disciples have given. Diamata has talked, Marinalini has talked, a few others. Now on the internet you can kind of get Durgamata or reminiscences of Durgamata's devotees and so on. But back in the 1970s, how did, what did you know? You had autobiography of a yogi, which, as Swami says, 
made it seem like Master was just so lucky to have stumbled into all these great experiences. And as Swami said, made people feel that they could just wander over to India, stand on a street corner, he said, spread their arms, and then some sadhu would touch them on the chest and they'd go into samadhi. And so a lot of Westerners did just go over and stand on street corners and put their arms out, but uh, didn't happen. And Master's whole story of his life in Autobiography of a Yogi it's not that it's not true, but it's a particular slant on it. I mean, his intention was to try to make it seem like this is everybody's destiny. In fact, Swamiji, just as a, an interleaf here, uh, said something interesting. Most of you know I've been going through my, my own notes of a lifetime with Swami, reading through it to write a book about him. And uh, uh, so I'm just pulling out very interesting things. Oh, yes, I know what I was going to say. Swamiji said, really, that Swami came at a certain stage of Master's life when he had shifted his emphasis a little bit. He was talking about how um, the women, Daya, Tara, I forgot Tara when I was talking earlier. Tara never did anything you know, in the public. Daya, Tara, Marinalini, and Ananda Mata particularly, who are the four strongest women who really guided SRF until well, to the present moment. Um, their, their understanding of Master, their interpretation of his mission, their idea of why he came, just it's so different, just so universe is different from Swami Kriyananda's. They live in separate planets in this respect. And because I've been doing a fast cycle through so much time, these points are really very strong in my mind, how completely divergent their points of view were. And Swami has also said some very interesting things about that. He said, when Master first came to America, to a certain extent, he seriously downplayed his own, his own self and his own experience. Because he really wanted everyone in this country to think, I did it, you can do it. You know, anybody can just go stand on a street corner and you'll find a Master and he'll touch you on the chest and that'll be that. Because he needed to get us interested, us meaning the American world, interested in the spiritual path. And it wouldn't have served for him to present himself as one with the infinite spirit. And good luck, you guys. It, it had to be that he, he downplayed himself and made himself seem more like everyone else. And he, he, it, it, it just was a different orientation. And many of those disciples came up much more through that. And it wasn't until... Um, things were, and that's how Autobiography of a Yogi is written, um, although he, of course, claims accurately cosmic consciousness. It has the poem Samadhi and all of that, but still, he definitely underplays himself. But by the time Swami got there, which was the last three and a half years, Master had withdrawn largely from public work. He was writing the Gita. He was just finishing the things that were left. And also because he knew Swamiji would understand him in the right way. He presented himself, as Swami said, much more impersonally and much more cosmically than uh, he had before. And Swami uses the example of when uh, the disciple uh, asked Master about a certain saint who had appeared to Master on the bluff at Encinitas, and Master didn't remember who it was. You've all heard Swami tell this story. Many of you have. Master didn't remember who it was. And then the disciple said, but sir, it was so-and-so at such-and-such a place. And Master responded rather casually, oh, well, so many come. 
that I, I can't really remember anyone in particular. I don't know which one you're speaking of. And the disciple expressed amazement. And Master said, just as a matter of fact, where God is, his devotees come. Or his saints come. And he was speaking of himself. And Swamiji said when he submitted that to uh, sayings of the Master after Master had passed to be published, he said, Tara, the editor, she just, she couldn't print it. She wrote, she changed it to say, where a devotee of God is, there his saints come. And Swami always tells that story by saying, I'm a devotee of God, and really, they haven't just surrounded me in that way. Because that isn't what Master said. But Swamiji said they just, they couldn't think about him in the way that Swami always saw him, partly again because that's how Master gave himself to Swami. So this speaks to my saying, well, I would have interpreted the story differently. Well, it wasn't my story. It was somebody else's story, and they had to interpret it according to whatever he was asking of them. And so um, Swamiji, but when he was telling the story of the path, so when Swami was telling the path, he really wanted people to understand in a way that had never been put out before. Really, who is master? What does it mean to be a guru? What was it like to live with such a one? This was also a time when um, there were just so many teachers and people asserting themselves. And there was one a teacher who was very popular for a while and then faded away. And he put up his uh, biography. Uh, that, or his, there's a CV, is that the word, what that word means, where you just sort of describe their accomplishments? And he included having been Rama in the past and Krishna in the past. It was like who he was before and who he is now. And it was, we laughed. We thought it was the funniest thing. It was just, it was like published in a magazine. And it's like, wow, just people are just, well, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. So Swami wanted us to really understand, wanted everyone to understand, you know, what it, what it really meant to be a master. So he chose the stories that he chose to convey the teaching, but also to really give us a feeling of what it was really like to live with him. And uh, so that, but there was a lot left over, of course. And so it, from 1978, Swami didn't publish again until 1990. And then he published the book, um, The Essence of Self-Realization. And this one he did, that one he did just as teaching. There's no biography, there's no commentary. He just took the words out of his notebooks and then out of his memory, and he organized them according to themes. He wrote that book as it happened. His, the house that he was being li- living in at that time was being remodeled, and so he moved into the, the, what is the guest house of Crystal Hermitage now, the little house that's j- just past Jyotish and Davies. And um, he wrote the book there, and it was winter time, and there was a, a power outage, I believe, for a long time. And he had to write the book with a pencil, instead of even with a... By then he had a computer. Um, But he said it turned out to be extremely fortunate that he wasn't able to do it on a computer because it wasn't merely that he worked off of his notes. He said he, he could just also hear Master speaking in his mind. And because that book was uh, themed, sometimes he didn't have quite enough material. And he would often pray to Master, you know, I need, I need to fill out this thought or I need more on this subject. And he said he would just then, a memory would come to him and he would, hear, he would hear Master's voice in his head. And then he would write down what Master was saying. But he said the, the, um, the sensitivity of the attunement 
uh, was greater because he wasn't uh, clacking at a machine and looking at a screen, but was doing it by hand. And he said, sometimes he would lose a word, and he actually saw me said this. He would say, Master, could you repeat that again? And he would. Yeah. After Swami finished Essence of Self-Realization was when he said, uh, my thoughts are so much Master's thoughts, I don't know where he ends and I begin, or I, I end and he begins, because of the experience of sitting there writing that book. Also, of course, that was the beginning of the 12 years of litigation with SRF. It was the first salvo, the second being when we took the name self-realization. But it was like a great force came together in that moment for him to do that. So that was 1990. And then that was it. And, but as he writes in the preface here also, because it was themed, not everything in the notebooks fit. Because if it wasn't one of those subjects, and then it couldn't be written, it couldn't be included. So he finished that, it's 1990, and, but he's still got, he knows he's not done. So it wasn't until 2003. And by 2003, Swamiji has moved to India. And uh, our, the litigation is finally over, and he's there. He's living, um, India, excuse me, Italy. He's living in his little house uh, in Italy. They call it Moksha Kutir now, I believe the house where he, as it happened, where he died. And uh, he was, his health was not good, but that's not a surprise. But his mood was also extremely, um, he was in a very intense state of vairagya. I mean, we'd been through 12 years of litigation. It was his, any hope he'd ever held, which he held so much hope, that there would be some reconciliation between his gurubhais and SRF, between Diamata and himself, it had just been pulverized by just that, all that awful litigation and the character assassination and the dishonesty. I have been in the SRF drawers for the last few weeks, and it was bad at the time, and it's worse in review. It was a very, very dishonorable period. And so Swami just realizes we've won, so we're not in danger of being obliterated anymore, but... Uh, at, at such cost. It was very painful. And it, so his, his heart was very, his heart really hurt. And he was often just very withdrawn from this world. Um, that was during that period of time where I had the conversation where he said, you know, last night my heartbeat was so weak. He said, I felt I could have just slipped away so easily. And that was when I said, well, we would be very sad if you did. But um, if you feel to go, you've already done so much. Actually, that conversation was after he finished this book. If you feel to go, then we couldn't possibly stop you. And, uh, but so, in any case, at that time, then he finally sat down and he felt it was the time and he, he wrote this. As he, he, he didn't describe the circumstances, but he just opened the notebook and just went through it and just put into this book every single thing that he thought should be published. You know, I don't know whether he kept back things that he felt were just not appropriate to publish or just weren't worthy of publication, but he finished the notebooks, basically. And then it was after that that he was just talking and about now that he'd finished this book, now that it was done, he just really felt he was really done with the planet. 
that was just he couldn't see any reason. You know, we'd saved we'd saved ourselves through all that litigation, and we were not in danger of being obliterated anymore. He'd finished the notebooks. I mean, you can imagine, 2003 from 1948. And all that time, he'd just been carrying these around. This is his commission from Master. He has to finish, and he's finished. And it's just like, and you know, we're all talking to each other from this side, like, well, we might as well get ready. I mean, he was already, what, 77, I think, at that point. Then all of a sudden, he calls and said, essentially, instead of dying, I think I'll move to India. (laughs) And he did. He just picked up and he went to India. I mean, this book wasn't even published yet because, in fact, I was part of staying up all night getting it all ready for the publisher in India where it came out really quickly. And uh, so he just, he'd finished a whole period and then he went on. I mean, then, subsequently, he wrote the essence of the Gita, the Patanjali book, so much more. But once he'd finished this, as far as he was concerned, he thought he was done. Master had another plan for him, but that's how important it was to him. I've done everything I have to do. Okay, so that's the story of it. You know, just when we got to India, Swamiji was feeling his way. Uh, I, I wasn't, I never was to live in India, but when Swamiji decided he was going to move to India, um, he called up Jyotish and Devi and Durga and Vidura and David and me and I think it was maybe just the six of us and just said, come over to Italy. We want to, I want to talk about whether we should start a work in India. And we got, to in, we got to Rome and took the train immediately to Assisi and we got on the... We, Swami was standing on the platform and he took us under his wing right away and we went into a restaurant to have pizza and uh, we'd ordered the pizza but before it got to the table... It was very clear that he was not asking us whether he should go. He was telling us that he should go. So by the time the pizza's at the table, Shivani has stood up and she's calling the travel agents because Vidura says, if you're about to go to India, we have to find a place for you to live. So I think by the time we were done with those pizzas, we were already, uh, Vidura and David and Arjuna, Arjuna was in India actually. So David and Vidura were booking tickets to leave the next day or the day after. I'm not sure they stayed more than 24 hours in India, in Italy, to go on to Delhi, and they ended up finding the house that we lived in for 10 years, the 10 by 8 house. But it was just like that, like, new, new period. I'm done, I'm ready to do something else. But we got to India, and Swami hasn't been, lived in India since uh, 1962. He's visited a few times, but he hasn't lived there, so he's trying to, you know, feel everyone out. The Indian said, you cannot call this book Conversations with Yogananda. You have to call it Conversations with Sri Sri Yogananda. And they were, they were very offended by this. And I mean, we sat there and Swami, you know, what do you all think? And finally said, he said, Swami said, well, actually it should be Conversations with Sri 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 Maharaj 108 Yogananda. And Swami said, I'm tired of all of that. He said, we're going to call it Conversations with Yogananda. And he just left it. It was sort of like he knew what he wanted and he wasn't going to just sort of fall into what everybody else thought he should do. And they brought it out right away. And then Swami did a whole series of television programs on this book. So there's like 108 or something TV shows in which Swami opens this book and talks about it. So it was really the cornerstone of what he did in India. It was the first book published there and became the television shows that went on for several years every day. So that's the importance of it. And 
Um, we'll take a short break, although it's a little early. Now we'll talk about what's in it. Okay. Does anyone have any question or comment they would like to make before we go galloping forward? Okay. I really do not know how this class is going to unfold because sometimes, you know, one relates to two and two relates to three and sometimes they just go all over the map. So we'll just um, do as we have done. We'll just start and just talk about it until we run out of things to say or you run out of things to ask and then we'll just go on to the next one. The first, um, and Swamiji tells us in here that the order that he ended up using for the book was simply the chronology, almost the chronology of the notebooks. It wasn't exact, but he said it was close to it. So this first, it begins with a professor from Columbia University coming to talk to Master. You know, I had, uh, I had the experience, of course, I never knew Master, but I lived so much with Swamiji, and so much of the way, well, the way Swami lived was the way Master lived, because what else would he do? I remember saying to Swamiji once, well, you know, your, your ways must be Master's ways. He said, of course. Like, who else would he model himself after? Um, but, you know, he wasn't, he never claimed to be master, but he, he tried to live and respond to the world in the same way. And one of the features that I, was so interesting to me with Swamiji, which is implied in here but not said so directly, is how many dimensions a, a person with that kind of expanded consciousness has so here's a Columbia University professor coming, and Swami's sitting there. And, you know, then the Indian ambassador would come, or some uh, relative from India would come to visit Master, or, you know, some uh, very young bhakti devotional person would come, and to each one Master would respond completely differently. I remember vividly about 1972 or 73 for me, um, when I had been working for Swamiji for a while and was just... I, I was with him a great deal, and I sort of felt I knew him. But then, uh, and I, I didn't have a passport even until I was in my mid-30s, so I never went out of the country. And um, I just didn't, I, I didn't have the kind of cultural background, even a, a, hair, a hair's width of it that Swami had. But a French-Canadian television crew came to interview Swami from Quebec. And Swami immediately sat down and gave them an interview in French which he did quite comfortably. And for me, I just, I'd never really known anyone who was multi or even bilingual at that point, except I did know Spanish-English people because I grew up in Texas. But he just, as, he was as comfortable speaking French to them as he had been speaking English to us. And it was the, this just sort of realization that I don't have any idea who this man is. I really don't. It was, it was just the, it wasn't the, in itself that remarkable that he spoke French, but it just reminded me that you just the circumstances will pull out what is needed from a soul like Swami or from Master. And that's why, Swamiji, I want to say, because it's important. He also felt it was important to say, who, did, who was Master speaking to? When was he speaking? Where was he? Because all of that is highly relevant. And it's, it's also very relevant because Master answered appropriately. He didn't answer dogmatically. In fact, I, I circled, which I didn't, I didn't read out, but I marked it. Um, the great guru followed no well-worn rut. And 
and was never ruled by conventions that he considered pointless. He was a way-shower, not an institution. So that's why he felt it was really important that we always understood context, because what Master might say in this context, he would say something else in this context. And that's again why Swamiji felt that it was necessary to comment, so that he could help us understand, because I'm beginning to work on, write this book about Swamiji, the intention behind this book, when people have asked me, is well, two, twofold. One, there's a, just a huge amount of experience that not everybody saw. And so it's just a question of history. I'd like to put a lot of history in front of people. I'd like to remind people of lots of things that Swamiji initiated and that we might want to follow through on that we haven't remembered. But the most important thing is we may remember what Swami, the decisions he made, or even the words he said, but what I think is what we really have to understand is why he said what he said and why he made those decisions, what his process was to get to that point. Because otherwise, we just quote what he said. And that's the beginning of dogmatism. Because it may or may not apply in the present instance, but Swami said it. So even Swami himself, being very conscious of this, wrote this book in such a way so that it doesn't just become the gospel according to Yogananda. It's, well, he said that to the Columbia professor. He said that, you know, to the Indian visitors. He said that in front of this particular visiting minister from that particular church. And then Swami will even sometimes give us more context. So the Columbia professor gets to start the story. And you can imagine, you know, he's a professor, he's coming in, he has, I mean, imagine having the opportunity to talk to Yogananda. It must have been very interesting. He says, he asks essentially, do your teachings help people to be at peace with themselves? It's an obvious question. Master responded, they do indeed, the master answered, but that is the least that they do. We teach people above all to be at peace with their creator. It's also interesting that Swami with the professor used the word creator. He didn't use the word God. He said with their creator. And he was using language that people could accept probably. But also, you would think, and the professor asked, the professor, by implication, he's an intellectual man. Swami Master didn't even use the word God with him. He said their creator. So you can sort of orient yourself. You don't know what his field of study was. But nonetheless... um, Uh, you would think, if I can just find a little peace of mind, you're thinking all the time, a man like him, he's probably, you know, in a competitive field and he's trying to work with his students. I mean, you can just take the whole picture from a Columbia University professor. So you teach your people to be at peace with themselves. And then Master immediately, just in just two sentences, just moves it into something else. Yes, of course, that's the least that we do. Because from the beginning and the notable characteristic about Master's teaching was that it's about God. It's about us attuning ourselves to a greater reality. He couldn't tell that professor all of those things that he might say to a disciple, but Master's message was not one of... um, it It wasn't peace with your ego. It was ego transcendence. So he just in answering a simple question like that, yes, of course, but I have much more to offer than that. Because if you're just in tune with your own little self, um, first of all, that's not much. I mean, yes, it's something. 
But Master wanted us to go into the infinite. That's where we're trying to go. And the, the rest of the conversation actually goes there. And whether the professor himself was oriented that way or under Master's influence, um, he, he began to feel that there was more that he was asking. But, but the Master also leads the professor step by step from peace with yourself into en- the endlessness of evolution, which we get to in number two or three. Um, the Columbia professor had a probing mind, Swami writes. Among many questions he asked, how do you distinguish between yourself and your followers? It's a very interesting question. And then, Master, I'll just read um, the whole answer because it's so beautiful. All are waves on the same one ocean, Master replied, um, composed as ocean water is of the same substance, spirit. Some of the waves are higher than others, Some waves don't even want to distance themselves from the ocean. Now, immediately, the egoic mind thinks that Master's going to be a bigger wave on the ocean. And that's just naturally what you think. Well, there's a lot of little waves, and I'm the biggest wave. And I'm sure that anybody listening to him would anticipate that's the answer, but Master reverses it immediately. Some of the waves are higher than others, Some waves, and this is so beautifully put, don't even want to distance themselves from the ocean. Of course, it's one great ocean of spirit, and far rather than wanting to stand out from it, we want to be part of it. But of course, you have to understand all this in the right way. Because again, the egoic mind just goes in a completely different direction. Undistinguished, unaccomplished, unambitious, untalented, colorless, unrecognized, impoverished, all of these things. But what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. So he goes another way. All waves, no matter how high, are in essence one and the same. The difference between the guru and the disciples then lies only in their respective closeness to the ocean. Amazing. In other words, in how conscious each one is of his essential reality. The greater the sense of ego, the taller the wave, and the greater, in consequence, the ignorance. (laughs) Um, The greater one's awareness of the ocean as one's sole reality, the smaller the wave, and also the less his sense of having a separate individuality. So just right there, that's the whole spiritual path, isn't it? You know, and, and... And to even begin to get your mind around how you can be more yourself by having less of a sense of individuality. And how Master could be so... Because you have to bear in mind, Master was no colorless, uh, you know, a two-dimensional force. He was just this enormous power in himself. And uh, the story that Swami tells in the path about how Master used to lecture in front of people and come running out onto the platform and lead everyone and how feels everyone, how is everyone awake and ready. And he used to do a lot of miracles in his miracle healings and just uh, feats of strength and phenomenal things in his lectures among the reasons why he was so popular. He was also popular because the man he met on the boat, Rashid, was very good at publicity. (laughs) And Rashid pushed Master into a much more um, outlandish, a much more uh, audacious public, publish, uh, publicity 
that Master might have selected on his own. And Rashid assured Master that, you know, these are Americans, that's what you have to do. And it worked. But it also worked because of the way Master presented himself. 1920, you know, 1925. And there he was in, in, uh, when Dr. Lewis, when we watched our play about meeting the Masters and we had the monologue from Dr. Lewis in the little drama that we did here. And Dr. Lewis talked about being wherever he was in Massachusetts and seeing this unusual figure walking across this dark-skinned person, which in and of itself was not that common, with long hair, and he often wore a turban, and he's dressed in orange, and he's just coming across the, the, the plaza of this little New England town. I mean, this was not done at all. But Master was not at all sort of slinking around, hoping he wouldn't be noticed. He was, he was magnificent in his nature. And, I mean, just imagine it in a hundred ways. You can just see it. Because it wasn't, also, also, it wasn't only that he had that consciousness. He was a young man. I mean, he was a, a powerful, fit, strong young man. <clears throat> so for him to just suddenly reverse this, the less consciousness, conscious you are of your separate individuality, the, the closer you are, the bigger you are in your spiritual greatness. And it's a paradox that you have to begin to experience it to really understand it. You, you, we, we think, we try so hard to make ourselves powerful by clinging to everything that's distinct about us. But when we finally begin to catch the wave, is actually the only way I can think to say it, and just begin to realize that we're just really moving <clears throat> in this ocean, and that the, the less we define ourselves and the more we attune ourselves, just how completely different it is. And again, masters, that image is so astonishing from the point of view of recognizing our own absolute divinity and the absolute divinity of everyone we see around us. No matter how um, Stalin himself was just a poor misguided wave on the ocean who just kept trying to make himself bigger and bigger. And in the end, of course, falls over and that's that because that's what happens to every big wave, every wave, big or small. But you can also just see how even the tumultuousness of our own lives is going to be defined by how high we've raised that wave, how much we've clung to our own desires, how much we've insisted that this is how it has to be and this is, must be what God wants. And I was talking to someone the other day and she was talking about intuition and she announced that she had this certain intuition that she was going to do this certain something and I, I just said I really would not trust that intuition at all because it's so, it plays so deeply into every subconscious guilt that you have. I just really, really doubt that that's intuition. You know, it's just like we get these ideas and we separate ourselves out and we start thinking that this is who we are. But the, the less we are defined and identified, and then the reason I mentioned that is it wasn't pride in that case, but it was just to be deeply identified, in this case with neuroses that we have, and just feeling all the pressure of I'm responsible for this, I'm responsible for that. But no, I don't think you are because we're all part of this great ocean of spirit. You think of the freedom in that. And then any little thing that we do wrong, it's just, oh, well, we just pulled the wave up a little too high. And then the inevitable karma just pushes us back again. 
And do we immediately try to claw our way up again? Or do we try to find where we stand in relation to all of it? And it's just so exquisite. And it also, you see how unified, I mean, really, if you meditate on it, if you just meditate on being a wave on the ocean right next to the the masters. The masters are these little billows on the sea, and there we are just bobbing along with them. And even, you know, big waves compared to little waves, compared to the ocean, there's really not that much difference between us, is there? And that's just another way to think about it. There's not that much difference. It's just the ocean just bobbing around. It's a fantastic meditation just to, just to hang out there with, with all of the saints and masters, all of us just being moved by the same infinite forces. Fabulous answer. Comments or questions? Yes, uh, microphone back to Chandra, please. Is it turned on? Now it's turned on. Okay. I, I was thinking about it as um, stopping, stopping the chase after things, and um, um, maybe being like left out, or it's. I don't know if that makes any sense to well, you. Well, what you're saying is. Well, the less, and he says it perfectly, the less identified we are with our individuality and the more identified we are with the ocean. So, you know, it's not that we, we don't put out a great deal of energy. We put out a tremendous amount of energy, but you're not identified with your individuality. You're moving as the ocean moves you, but your sense of self is that the ocean is moving me, not that I am the wave making this happen. Does that make you don't have to chase after things or make things happen. Or um, you follow, you follow where the where you feel moved to go. I mean, it's it's a it, that's a different question. I mean, you're really asking to explain how do you know what's God's will and how do you know what you're imposing on it. But what you are describing is the freedom and relaxation when you do get into that flow. And you just begin to sort of sense how things should move, what feels right. It's confusing to, to watch everything, you know, and, and people doing this and doing that and having to do this and having to do that and not having, having those feelings myself, you know. Yeah, there's... I need to keep my energy up, but I keep... But it takes a great deal of energy and willpower not to, um, to, to, not to, get to, captured, to not to get captured by your ego yeah no but there you have it there's the spiritual path yeah and uh, every time anybody asks me no there's no shortcut <laughs> you just you just yes it's not complicated but it's not easy because the inclination to identify with our egoic self is just, it's a long-standing habit. It's really nothing but a habit, but it's a very long-standing one. And, you know, we just imagine um, that we'll feel better by following it. And in the short term, we do. But in the long term, we don't. You know, you get to indulge yourself, and for the time it takes you to eat that quart of ice cream, you think you're getting away with it. But then after it's done, and the time it takes you to make a very 
uncharitable decision so you can get what you want, um, it feels good, but then it catches up with you. Time you lose your temper and don't have to restrain it anymore. It feels good to have finally said what you wanted to say. Then you have to live with the consequences. And I've never found another way to learn. My friend and I used to have the discussion about whether or not the all-out crash-and-burn method of spiritual growth was better than the careful uh, step-by-step method. And we never really came to a conclusion. But uh, you just have to follow whatever you have to follow and then pick yourself up each time. And don't worry if it seems difficult, it is. (laughs) All right. Okay. The professor then asked... Is there a difference then of evolution? Because he was having trouble getting this picture in his mind that we're all just the same, you know, wave on the ocean, that we're all the same. I mean, imagine how it just, not at all what he expected. The master, that much is true if we understand, there's just so much brilliance here, evolution to mean a progressive refinement of awareness. In other words, it's not an evolution from being a sea creature to a land mammal and then from being a four-wheeled, four, four-handed creature to being a, a, a standing up. It's a progressive refinement of awareness. That's what evolution is. There's no other evolution. We just become more and more conscious of a greater reality. The tall waves participate more exuberantly in the play of delusion. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous language? The tall waves participate more exuberantly in the play of delusion. They're just so much more excited about it. Remember when Swamiji found Autobiography of a Yogi and he was in that New York bookstore and he talked about holding the book to his chest and he met some old schoolmate who was telling him about how he was going to start a career in advertising on Wall Street. He was going to get a big house and how everything was really going for him. And as Swami said, the more that man talked, about all the worldly success he was going to have and all this stuff he was going to do. The Swami said the more he clutched autobiography to his heart and he said, you know, this, this man that he'd grown up with or was part of, of Swami's, the world he'd grown up in, was a stranger, he said, this man who he hadn't even met, even read his book. Somehow he was his ally. You know, and that's what it is, participate more exuberantly in I've shared with you when I tried to convert a friend of mine early on to the path and started where where newbies, new neophytes on the spiritual path often start by trying to explain to my friend that desire was really the great enemy and that we should overcome our desires, which is about the stupidest place to start. I mean, who wants to overcome their desires? Everybody's out there to get them fulfilled. Like, what a totally unwinning thing to say. Oh, on the spiritual path, you don't get anything you want. Do you want to be on the spiritual path with me? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so I'm trying to explain this by saying, you know, you get your desires fulfilled and you get something you want and then after a while it, you just, it disappoints you. Yes, yes, she was saying to me. Yes, that's right. Yes, I've experienced that. And I thought, oh, my first convert. So she looked at me so seriously, I could still see her eyes. That's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. <laughs> Because this one won't satisfy you, so you've got to be on to the next. You've got to be on to the next immediately, because you're right, this one's a disappointment. Whoa, that was really not where I was going. My life as a, you know, a missionary did not get off to a very auspicious start. 
participate more exuberantly in the delusion. Isn't that what you see around you all the time? People who are so excited about what? Exactly. Swamiji said when he would visit with his family, and they were a a refined and educated family, but he, he said he often thought when he was sitting at the dinner table that he was missing the point somehow. That, they, that, that there was something else they were trying to say that he just wasn't quite getting. This was after he was on the path and would visit. Then he gradually realized, no, actually, that was the point. <laughs> you know, just the furniture, the trip, the, the this, the that. It was just like participating exuberantly in that play, and that was it. Evolution is a greater awareness. That's all that evolves. And so, he says, the tall waves participate more exuberantly in the play of delusion. The little waves, which are more enlightened, are no longer excited by the play. Now, see, that's also a very... The language is so exact. Swami is so careful. And Master was too, but Swami was, I'm sure, made sure that he said exactly what Master wanted to say. He didn't say they no longer participate. He said they're no longer excited by it. In other words, it's not from all that outward involvement that our sense of joy and enthusiasm and energy comes from. That's where one participates exuberantly and just knows that this is really going to be it. We have courtside tickets to the playoffs, you know. Wow, look at them, courtside tickets to the playoffs, right? And you go in there in this deafening, screaming sound. But anyway, we have them, right? <laughs> The little waves, which are more enlightened, are no longer excited by the play. And and that also means they they don't react negatively either. They just don't allow themselves to become excited. I have recently resigned, I want you all to know this, and you are all free to remind me, from being the policewoman of the noise level of the planet. I have lost. I concede that I have been absolutely defeated. And with one small exception, which is where I swim, I'm going to continue to hold the ground there. But everywhere else, you will no longer hear me talk about it. Because I've just lost. So I'm going to be no longer being excited by the sheer gross insensitivity of the planet. Okay, moving right along. (laughs) Yeah, I could say it just one more time. Enlightened beings enjoy everything not for itself, but as a play of God's. Think about that freedom. Yeah, we enjoy everything not for itself, but as a play of God's. That means everything, no matter what it is. This is just God's play. I mean, my, uh, my mantra has been for a long time, and it's a really good one. This is the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, and this planet... I mean, there's just a certain level of consciousness that is characteristic of any planet that is in the early stages of Dwapara Yuga. This is it, friends. And I say to myself, what did you expect? Did you think it wouldn't be Dwapara Yuga when it is? And do you think that the planet would be like Satya Yuga when it isn't? I mean, this has been a hard lesson for me. But it's just the truth. So we just have to enjoy everything. For play. It's just a play of God. They're just, just children 
And the only thing that, the only way to evolve is a progressive refinement of our own awareness. And you can do that no matter where. Jesus was being crucified and he never lost his God consciousness. I mean, can you imagine how much worse it could be than that? I mean, he'd come to liberate them from all suffering and they crucified him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was all just a play of God as he could see it. Imagine having that, just being that strong. There was a man, uh, I I can't even remember the context, but he had been a prisoner of war in the Vietnam War. And uh, he was tortured repeatedly. And uh, and it was always, you know, of course, he, he was resisting and resisting and resisting. And one day he just... He was just so uh, drained, just so finished. And he just surrendered completely to God in a way that he'd never even known was possible. And he said his torturer walked in and looked at him and walked out and he was never tortured again. It was just finished. He'd, He'd done everything that he had to do and it had brought him to a state of absolute surrender to God no longer excited, just enjoys everything. I mean, it's hard to imagine being, enjoying being tortured as a prisoner of war, but he just reached the point where it was just all God's play. He couldn't, he couldn't assert his individuality in the context anymore. See, that's what it really came to. He was so beaten through the physical suffering and emotional, mental. I mean, those are tough lessons, but if it's a lesson that you will then have forever? Was it not worth it? That's where Master says, everyone who attains enlightenment, everyone who becomes liberated, doesn't complain anymore about the, pa- the method that got them there. The only people who complain are the people who haven't finished yet. And, we're, and we complain because we're looking for shortcuts. Really, that's why we complain. We don't want to have to go as far as we have to go. Yes, Chandra? He, he wasn't apathetic, though. No, of course not. No. No. Wanted to make sure no. that... Every- no. Yes, he wasn't apathetic. Uh, yeah. it, it takes a lot of energy to have that kind of calmness. He had, ex- the individuality keeps wanting things to be different than they are and keeps struggling to keep things different than they are. The, enlight- the gradual refinement of enlightenment is to just surrender to the ocean. You, I mean, all the strain is to stay up. Oh, that's, that's the effort. That's the tension. To just relax and, and flow with whatever the ocean is doing. It doesn't, not that there's low energy or lack of involvement, but there's no tension because you're just going where things are going. You're not trying to hold yourself separate. That's the difference. It's tricky. Then the professor said, is there, no, is there any end to evolution? And the master replied, No, you go on until you achieve endlessness. Swamiji has quoted that many times because it's so beautiful. In fact, when we published The Path, um, the man, uh, Michael Toms, who helped us publicize that book, he loved that quote so much. On the very first announcement of the publishing of The Path, he had that quote. The master was asked, is there any end? No, you go on until you achieve endlessness. Which also says that don't, uh, well, don't try to crow your victories too much because there's just another wave coming. (laughs) 
it doesn't mean that you haven't accomplished anything, but until you achieve endlessness, there's always something after it. And I mean, that's, that's the long-distance race. Swami used to say, don't be a straw fire. No, no, don't think of this as a sprint. This is a long-distance run. Straw fire is a very interesting concept because that's a very important one, which is um, a straw fire burns very hot, but all the fuel just gets burned up, and then there's nothing else. And so we ourselves, we have to really just look at this as it's not a question of how excited I can get right now or how extreme I can get in my um, enthusiasm right now. It's just recognizing that this is a very long walk and I just need to keep within a very steady way. I need to keep just fanning the flames and feeding the fire of my devotion. It's not like I can consider it all finished or... um, that just because I had a good day, now I'm done. You know, nothing like that. It's just, I just have to keep feeding it. This is the sadhana in a, a, a word or a, a section or two. Master talks about that, about um, how much he taught and how you have to do something about it. You can't just claim it. And we're not done until we're infinite. So if you're not infinite, you're not done. <laughs> and I mean, it's nice to, to feel that we've made some progress. It's very pleasant to feel we've made some progress. Recently I was talking to someone about my present state of mind and I remarked, I would like to think, having been on the path since I was 22, that I could actually practice the teachings. (laughs) I don't want to be overconfident, but perhaps I actually can practice the teachings. I mean, it's a funny thing to say, but why not? You know, why not just say, well, I can practice these teachings. I know what's going on here. Let's just do it. But we're not finished just because, uh, we're, you know, we're still moving. Just, are we infinite? No. There we have it. Well, anything else before we stop? We are, we are infinite, we just don't know. Pardon me? We just don't realize it yet. We have to have a gradual refining of our awareness. What's lacking is our awareness. Okay. So, that's it for tonight. And I will tell you, we did the preface, and we did number one and two. So, this is going to be fun, isn't it? And there's only, do you want to know, 460... (laughs) There are only 461, and we just did two of them. This could go on for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I gave you a long one. That was the preface. Thank you. So, end of class number one.